How do you meaningfully bring your faith into the workplace? For most, the easy answer involves practicing evangelism and being morally upright. But while those things are important, the gospel addresses so much more. Once the gospel takes hold and we begin to see a God that makes all things new, we can begin to expect so much more from our work. In this episode, we hear theologian and pastor of Faith and Work, Reverend David H. Kim, discuss the sacredness of vocation and its ability to deepen our faith and to see the unseen. Thank you. It's, uh, it's good, great to be here with you guys. And um, p- people do often ask me, what does uh, the pastor of Faith and Work do? And I try to explain it like, do you have a college pastor in your church? And a lot of people will say, yeah, we do have a college pastor. And, and uh, what does he do? Well, he tries to make the, the faith relevant to the college years. And, and my response is simply, I try to make the faith relevant to people who work. Um, which is pretty much most people in your in your congregations, and if you think about it, you know, you're at, if you were to ask your average congregant, how do you meaningfully bring your faith into your workplace? How would they answer that question? Because if you think about it, it's been over 500 years where Luther began to lay out that theological foundation uh, with this whole doctrine of the priesthood of all believers that basically says. Everyone is called. Everyone, every work uh, is meaningful in the kingdom of God. We laid down that gauntlet, a huge kind of theological concept, but then 500 years later, and you were to ask that question to the people sitting in your pews, they might not know quite how to answer that question. And for most people, it's I try to share the gospel when I can, and I try to be an ethical and moral upright person so that hopefully I don't mar the name of Jesus through the work that I do. And those things are, are important, but shouldn't the gospel address so much more than those things? And so what we're addressing here today, there's a little bit of a deeper problem in the church because when 500 years moves forward and we are where we are right now as a church, you kind of have to take a step back and ask yourself the question, what aren't we seeing that we need to start seeing? And so today is really, I hope, the beginning of a conversation, as we've mentioned a few times already, that will continue into next year because we kind of have to come clean here and say, as the church, we haven't done a really good job in thinking about this. We've done a pretty good job at preparing people for life inside the church, but we haven't done a great job for preparing people for life outside the church. And how many non-pastors are in the room? And just to give me a sense, would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I don't think there's much pushback there. And, um, and so today I want to think about um, why, partly, why, why is it that we are so ill-prepared as the church in preparing our people for life outside the church? And part of it, if you think about um, the importance of theology, you know, you think, uh, you wouldn't never say to someone, well, the gospel is actually pretty intuitive, right? Because this whole idea, one, of, of the Trinity... <laughs> And then this idea that you're saved by, by uh, grace through faith alone, these are completely counterintuitive to our day-to-day experiences. And for us to then somehow assume that the, the way that the gospel penetrates into day-to-day work should also be somewhat intuitive would really be, be to undermine how different the gospel is and the impact that the gospel can have. And part of the problem today is uh, because we as a church have failed to really develop this area well, uh, I think the problem that we have with work is not that people expect too much from work, but they expect way too little. And when you look at the sweep of what the gospel does in its transforming powers, it is changing all things, making all things new as we see in Revelation 21. 
And so why is it that when we think about work, we don't think about the amazing transformative power to enter into the lives of the people that we're working with in our churches, but also then through them to their respective organizations, companies, uh, ventures, sectors, and begin to really make a broader ripple effect. And that's why I say I think the average Christian doesn't see the transformative power when it comes to their work. But once they get a little taste of that, I mean, you will see a fire in them starting to grow uh, hotter and hotter because they start to see that this stuff really matters to them day to day, Monday through Friday, as well as what they do kind of on nights and weekends. And one of the key theologies that I want to go through this afternoon, and there's a lot, but one particular theology is the theology of exile. Because that provides a powerful context for how, that shapes the expectations they have of work. And when you think about you know, people's various expectations of work, they range quite a bit. For some people, work is just a means to get a paycheck. And I essentially live for the weekend to be able to spend time with my family and my friends. For other people, work is my entire life. Like, this is how I get my sense of identity, purpose, and meaning. And I'd say, especially in New York, we tend to get a lot of those. And when we think about these wide-sweeping expectations, how do we begin to, to talk about the biblical expectations of work? You know, does the Bible actually prepare us for a set of expectations? Because you know the power of expectation. When you go into a movie thinking it's going to be awesome, you always come out a little bit disappointed, or most of the time you do. Or if you go with low expectations, you're like, that movie was fantastic. And you can have two people on the same job, pretty much in the same position, and one person is like, I am so thankful and grateful for my work. And the other person is trying to figure out a way out. And expectations have a powerful way of shaping our responses, emotional responses, as well as our intellectual responses. And the theology of exile, I think, pre presents a really robust foundation for us to be able to communicate biblical expectations of work. So let's just um, dive in. When you think about the theme or the theology of exile, it, it really runs... Uh, throughout the whole of Scripture. It's one of those uh, themes that from the very beginning where Adam and Eve are expulsed from the garden, they're exiled from their home, uh, to, uh, to Abraham, who's also exiled from his home, and then the archetypes of exile in the Old Testament, the exile of uh, Israel and Judah in the south into the Assyrian and Babylonian empires, respectively, and then into the New Testament, and you got to think about, well, what does God want us to know about this whole time of exile? Because even from a biblical book perspective, you know, 12 minor prophets, five major prophets, all during this kind of pre, post, and exilic period. And you're kind of saying, why do we have 12 minor prophets? They kind of all read the Like, they're pretty similar. So why did God give us 17 of these books? And it's almost like God wants to have a level of nuance and understanding of this era because it's important to the church. And when you think about um, exile, one of the best ways, I think, to understand this period is to contrast it. And so I want to do a compare and contrast between life for the Israelites in exile versus life uh, for Israel in Jerusalem, particularly under Solomonic reign. I'm sorry, I'm, gonna, I'm assuming a certain historical background of the scriptures, but uh, you know, Solomon was the third and final king of the monarchy of Israel. And during his reign uh, was a golden age of Israel. 
And let me read you, just as a, a short way of communicating this, uh, a quote from John Bright, and he wrote a, one of a, the kind of authoritative histories of Israel, and he writes this. Uh, the Bible with justice depicts Solomon's reign as one of unexampled prosperity. Israel enjoyed a security and a material plenty such as she ne had never dreamed of before and was never to know again. And this, in turn, allowed an amazing flowering of the peaceful arts. And so much so that we have uh, recorded in Scripture that the Queen, uh, Queen Sheba comes in 1 Kings 10, and she marvels at the accomplishments of Solomon. And she, lo she longs to just sit in his court to be able to glean from him the wisdom that he just seems to exude. And this is a very specific uh, time in Israel's history where they basically have become a kingdom to which other kingdoms are drawn to because of their brilliance. And then within one generation, you have a very dramatic turning point where then there is this exile. And exile reflects something uh, starkly uh, contrasting. And let me read you another uh, quote here, again, just to say pithy, the kind of realization of what exile brings. At a stroke, her national existence was ended. This is now uh, Judah. With it, all the institutions in which her corporate life had expressed itself, they would never be... Uh, recreated in precisely the same form again. The state destroyed and the state cult perforce suspended. The old national cultic community was broken and Israel was left for the moment an agglomeration of uprooted and beaten individuals by no external mark any longer a people. The marvel is that her history did not end altogether. Now, in that contrast, you could think about this in a, in a pragmatic way. What did discipleship look like in Jerusalem? And what did discipleship look like in exile? And by extension, and this is a question you guys are going to be discussing, what presumptions do you have with the way that you disciple your people? Is it assuming a Jerusalem paradigm? Or is it assuming an exilic paradigm? Because those... Different assumptions very practically shape the way we think about discipleship. If you uh, look at the handout, that's uh, the front pages at the top is entitled Exilic Discipleship. Uh, go ahead and turn to uh, page three. And what I'm going to just refer to is this uh, chart that says Jerusalem and exile as, again, a quick shorthand in trying to contrast uh, these two paradigms. And so, for example, um, when you think about different ways of discipling in these two contexts, in Jerusalem, you are the dominant culture, but in exile, you're the minority culture. And because you're the dominant culture, you're trying to build a kingdom within a kingdom, meaning you understand that you are your own sovereignty, and you're trying to uh, create that sense of national identity. But in exile, you're called to seek the prosperity of an alien kingdom. Very different. You're not building your own kingdom. You're actually called to seek the prosperity of a different kingdom. And we're going to get into that a little bit more as we turn to Jeremiah 29 in a second. Uh, but again, in Jerusalem, the expectations are of comfort and security. In exile, the expectations are of discomfort and insecurity. So think about the average congregant. Is your preaching kind of giving them the expectation that when they come to church, at some level, they should just expect comfort and security? Or are you actually reinforcing this perspective that when we are thinking about our call in the world, that we are to assume discomfort and insecurity relative to kind of Jerusalem? Uh, and then below that, in Jerusalem, your identity is taken for granted. 
In exile, your identity is always being challenged. In Jerusalem, you have an inward orientation. In exile, you have an outward orientation, meaning in, in Jerusalem, you're, you're caring for your own people, whereas in exile, you're caring for people outside of your own community. Uh, in Jerusalem, there is a triumphalistic attitude surrounding, uh, attitude surrounding cultures, meaning uh, you think you are the pinnacle of culture, and so you expect people to conform to your standards. Whereas in exile, uh, the attitude is one of a servant uh, towards the surrounding cultures. So in each of these points, we begin to see there is a pretty stark uh, contrast in the assumptions that, uh, that the Christian has. And I want you just to take a, a few moments to think about what lines up with more of my expectations of my church or the church I go to and the programming that's being offered? Because I think implicitly, I know for me, going through seminary, there was this implicit understanding that the successful pastor was the one that was able to get people from their community in their church, like literally seven days a week offering an endless amount of church programming. And the more successful of a pastor you were, you know, the bigger the building and the more people in your church. And in a certain paradigm, and I would say now clearly, the Jerusalem paradigm is clearly that, that's, oper- that's the operating assumption. But in an exilic paradigm, that's actually a very, like, is, is that actually doing what you're supposed to be doing in this context? And so... Just to drive this exilic perspective home a little bit further, the passage that perhaps many of us are familiar with, um, again, an archetypal passage, Jeremiah 29. This is the passage where God says to Israel, uh, who's in exiled in Babylon, this is that famous passage, seek the good of the city, for if it prospers, so will you. But take a, a moment. I don't know if you've kind of, kind of taken a step back to think about the context and the emotional response to that command. Israel has just now gone from the period of Solomon, a time and era of unprecedented prosperity and national security, to now being forcibly removed where all external markers of their identity, namely land, king, and temple, have now been destroyed. And if you know a little bit about world history, you know that Babylon, or the, the Babylonian Empire, they were not the paragons of justice and civility. In fact, historically speaking, it can be argued that they were probably one of the most brutal examples in all of human history of an empire that you did not want to be in exile in. And so imagine then the emotional response when God tells you, I want you to plant vineyards. I want you to build houses here. I don't want you to marry off your children. And those of us who are parents, that one kind of gets you the most. Like. And then he says, seek the good of the city. It's kind of like if God told the, the Jews during World War II, living in Berlin, being persecuted by the Nazi regime, seek the good of Berlin. Because if they prosper, so will you. And that's exactly what God was saying. And so to hear that would have been absolutely demoralizing. God, why would you ask us to seek the good of an empire does not, that does not at all represent your kingdom, your values? It doesn't make sense to me why you would do this to us. And as you know, you know, in the Old Testament, you see the history of the Israelites twice. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, and then the whole second reiteration in first and second Chronicles. 
And now you understand why there are two histories because the, the, the trauma of exile was so powerful that they had to rethink their entire national history from the pers- perspective of post-exile to get a sense of who they were. So why do I bring up that, that uh, exilic context? Because if you think about that, that has some powerful uh, implications for our expectations of work and this notion of calling. Because today, the, the dominant understanding of calling is still kind of like a place where I use my gifts and where I feel appreciated and affirmed. It's a little bit like ideally where I'm self-actualized. And, uh, and until I find that job, I still, I, and especially if you're a millennial, sorry, I don't mean to go down on millennials, but they are a little bit known for job you know, surfing, kind of going from job to job. In five years, they can have five jobs, and that's perfectly normal. But when we think about the biblical expectations of, of, of our context, to be able to tell people, you know, part of our sense of call is to seek the good of companies and organizations that don't necessarily seek your good. And sometimes God calls us into places, and the very reasons you want to quit are the very reasons why he's brought you there. Because imagine... What would a Babylon look like if Israel wasn't there? Is it just coincidental that God brought his loved, beloved people into one of the most brutal and hostile empires in world history? Or was God being merciful to the world because he brought his people into that darkness? And you begin to see a little bit of the heart of God because in exile there is a powerful realignment of God's people and their calling. Exile forces you to wrestle with the deeper questions of who am I and what does it mean to be the people of God in a way that you don't when you're living in Jerusalem. And God does that in very painful ways for the Israelites. I mean, taking away your land, your king, and the temple. The very three external markers connected with the covenant that God had given to his people. He takes them all away because he wants them to affirm again, who are you as my people? And this perspective begins to dramatically, as we, we talk about this and, and help people wrestle through where they are, the, you know, all oh, they're grumbling, all oh, they're complaining, all of a sudden it takes that kind of like judo twist where it's like, oh, you know, maybe God has given me eyes to see these things because he actually wants me to be a part of that. Oh, yeah, isn't it that Christian thing to bring light into darkness? Aren't we supposed to be salt in the world? And all the rhetoric that they've heard, the teaching that they've heard all their lives begins to apply into their workplace context in ways that they have never done before. And they, they sense uh, uh, their calling, right? That, that, that sense of being empowered and sent for a purpose beyond this is the place where I just have to work to get my paycheck. And the biblical context of calling is one that I think in exile, it addresses kind of the entire socioeconomic ladder, the kind of work that people uh, from white-collar professions to blue-collar professions, you know, nonprofit, for-profit. And the idea is um, that our calling is, is once one of obedience to where we are sent. And again, this is not a fatalism of, okay, wherever you are, you just have to stay there and do your best because uh, I want to undergird the importance of discernment. And if you have the ability to kind of change your job that's toxic, I'm not saying you always have to stay in a toxic job. So uh, hear me rightly. But I want to at least present the possibility that perhaps God is actually calling you to stay in a place that is very dark. 
And sometimes that dark place is the church, is it not? <laughs> For some of us who are pastors. Um, but when you begin to see that, you know, the whole idea of Jesus as the paragon of the exile begins to make sense. Uh, because here's Jesus who leaves his home, this place of comfort and security, a place of affirmation and love. And he enters into this world, the world that he's created. And he is received very hostily, even to the point where we actually, we kill him. And you talk about this calling of seeking the good of people who don't seek your good. So that through your witness, through your, your perseverance, that the regenerating or the... Uh, the renewing power of the gospel begins to enter into these very dark places. And that begins to give people a vision for their work that, oh, now I kind of get why my work matters to God. Because if God cares about the whole world and all the work that we're a part of, and then it makes sense that I am where I am and that I see what I see. Um, I often get the question, uh, but what if you're stuck in this kind of, you know, you're a garbage collector? You know, what is a calling there? And I don't have answers to the questions like that, but I do see in, in, in Christ, in passages like Philippians 2, you know, God who being very nature, and you know, Jesus being very nature, God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And in that final act with the disciples where he washes the disciples' feet, he kind of was saying like this, if I need to be a garbage man for the sake of what God has called me to do, that's what I do. And, and it begins to help us understand that our, our sense of what we do with our lives is much more than self-actualization and a place where our talents are released. If that can happen, that's fantastic. But the biblical notion of calling is much greater than the, the dominant cultural understanding of work and calling. And until we begin to teach our people that God's plan for renewal and, and a sense of our own contentment and satisfaction is so much greater than our own, our own pursuits of our own inner authenticity or kind of being able to satisfy the expectations of the people around me, my family. Once people see that the scripture begins to bring a calling that is much more powerful than even these expectations, I think people feel empowered, even if the jobs that they perform don't necessarily have a lot of day-to-day -day sense of meaning uh, and excitement. Um, and let me, and I'll close um, with one story too that uh, is an interesting story here. Um, this woman that I've known for a long time, in her heart, uh, she's an artist, uh, a fantastic uh, artist, and she's a musician. And, you know, because of some of the pressures of her family, she entered uh, into law school. She did pretty well, and then she entered into a firm here in New York. All the uh, Meanwhile, on the weekend, she's doing her art thing, touring the country, you know, playing in bands, loving this. And, you know, she's finally at a point where she has some level of financial stability, and she's thinking, okay, this is finally the time for me to get out because I hate this job. And meanwhile, she keeps on getting promoted. And then she comes up to me after one of our events. She says, David, you'll never guess. They actually just uh, asked me to be a, a partner in my firm. And we both just had a great laugh because I know, like, this is the last thing she wants to do. Every point, like, she wanted to leave, they basically kind of promote her. And she's asking me, she's like, David, is this the time for me to leave? And uh, I know her, I, I'd known her long enough and we were close enough for me to say something this dramatic to her. I said, absolutely not. 
Like, why do you think that God, and I didn't really, you know, not in this authoritative tone, but enough to be able to say, you know, just think about this. Why do you think at every turn that God would promote you? You know, and just I talked a little bit about this exilic perspective, and perhaps God wants you there because you're not gripped by the same kind of idols of your particular firm and of your particular sector. You know, idols of success, idols of, of, of trying to uh, make a name for yourself. You know, you could care less in a way about being a lawyer. And maybe that's why you actually have to be there. And, you know, the end of the story now is actually she's a partner. And I think she, she feels so much more strongly, even though her heart's desire is to be a violinist playing in the band. She recognizes with a deeper sense of conviction her calling to, to her firm. But she also knows another part of the story that we can't get into today. She knows for all eternity she'll be able to play her violin pretty well. And that this is a fixed amount of time that we have to do specialized work, work that we can't do once Jesus returns. And so I think in her, there is this tension of seeing the brokenness of having to do work that does not feel like the kind of work that releases her fullness, but at the same time, knowing that her calling is not to herself, but it is to Jesus, who for various reasons have made clear to her that she needs to be in this particular firm. So... There it is, and I think I finished early. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Um, so I want to turn it over to the tables now, and uh, the, I have two questions here. Or actually, three. It's, again, it's on the handout. Um, and just to give you a sense, the, the, you have this white paper that gives you a, a basic overview of the things that I, I talked about today, and it goes into some specificity that I didn't as well. Uh, so this is something that you can take home and read uh, to learn further. But um, for now, if you can look at the, the section, uh, questions for discussion right underneath the grid. Um, and these are kind of honest questions that we need to ask ourselves. What perspective best describes your current discipleship practices in your church? Jerusalem or exile? And what would Jerusalem discipleship look like in your context and, context, and contrast that to what exilic discipleship could look like in your context. And three, why is it so easy to be drawn to the Jerusalem perspective for developing discipleship practices? And another way of saying that, I think, is um, because our dominant best practices for discipleship assume a Jerusalem paradigm, that's why, in many respects, we've been able to ignore the faith and work part because if we are preparing life for people inside our kingdom... They don't need faith in work. But if the perspective is exile and you're preparing them for life outside the church, faith in work is a quintessential part of our discipleship. And so I think as you think about that, just I hope it begins to kind of go a little bit deeper at what presuppositions have informed kind of your, your sense of best discipleship practices. And in some ways, are you shooting yourself in the foot in terms of preparing people for life outside of the church? Because as they are better equipped for life outside of the church, they will be better able to communicate the gospel in ways that are relevant and meaningful for people outside the church. And in some ways, in that way, hopefully be able to bring people into the church because what they see before them is a person that's articulated the gospel hope in very real context and with people that can share that context um, in very empathetic ways. So um, let me just close in a prayer and then we'll turn it over to you guys. 
Father, thank you for an opportunity to think about this larger context that we're in. And we know in the New Testament that the dominant metaphor of the church was uh, that we are people of exiles, of aliens and strangers, of people whose citizenship awaits us uh, in, in the, the kingdom that is to come. And yet people who, are, who now not forcibly go into exile, but now willingly go into exile for the sake of the gospel. And we ask that you would work in our hearts even now to open our eyes to see how uh, we either as pastors or as congregants can begin to think of our churches as places where we are preparing people, encouraging them, strengthening them uh, for life outside the church. And so there is an eagerness to come back every Sunday to be equipped, to be encouraged, to have the same vision of the work that the gospel is doing throughout the city and to be sent back out so that when people go back to work on Monday, their hearts are renewed with a greater sense of their own purpose. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. CFW exists to explore and investigate the gospel's unique power to renew hearts, communities, and the world in and through our day-to-day work. To learn more about CFW's programs and resources, please visit faithandwork.com.